Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done, whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, two former NFL teammates who have opened up a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. Plus, it's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. Brian and Michael are proving you can tackle all your passions with the power and speed of the new Surface Pro 6. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by I'm Obsessed With This Podcast. Ever watch something and become so obsessed with it that you can't wait to talk about it with your friends? Bobby Finger, host of Who Weekly, feels the same way. So every other week, Bobby invites guests to talk about the Netflix shows and films they are most obsessed with in the new podcast, I'm Obsessed With This. Tune in to hear about the most binge-worthy shows like Russian Doll or Sex Education. And subscribe to I'm Obsessed With This on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, winter is here. It's Andy Greenwald. Hey man, so I'm not, how do I sound if I'm on the phone? I love I'm on the phone it. Today. See, I grew up in the era of Bill Simmons calling Jacko in his office, yeah. man. This is what podcasts are supposed to sound like to me. Complex litigation, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is over here. Uh, what's up, brother? It's uh, Well, we're recording this on a Wednesday. This is for our Thursday show. Just at the top, I'm just going to say I will be in Texas at South by Southwest. So if you see me, say, hey, I'm going to be seeing a bunch of movies. We're also doing a live Talk to Thrones and a live rewatchables on Saturday and Sunday. You can find details on my Twitter feed, Ringer Twitter feed, everybody's Twitter feed. Greenwall will not be there. Because he loves no. the Los Angeles weather so much, he can't bear to leave. My Twitter feed will be strangely silent on these topics. <laughs> I can't get the signal boost from you? No, no, I, I'm not supporting your trip to Texas. <laughs> um, you want, we, I mean, I know we're doing a mailbag, buddy, but should we talk about the Los Angeles weather? Because well, you know, it's funny night. you should say that. This is a mailbag, and the first question I have here is from Frank Christian Birch, and it says, how's it going, fellas? Listen, Frank, at 11.30 last night, Frank, Pacific Standard Time, there was a lightning bolt strike on Los Angeles that was so loud, I levitated from my bed and ran to check on my children for no reason. And the closest emotional reaction I can connect it to is Harvey Firestein's death in the original film Independence Day. That, that, was, my, that was my big mood. Was Harvey Firestein looking up at the aliens destroying New York City? <laughs> so you know, Tuesday. I I was I was watching the Warriors game, and I I did think it was an alien invasion for a second because I didn't like look at the weather report, so I didn't know that that was a possibility. And my entire living room like oh, got a like step or two brighter for a second. I was like, oh, yeah, it's happening, and that is you know as you. As you know, Andy is a longtime friend of mine. It's like that's the kind of situation I'm really, I'm really looking for because I feel like that's that's the moment where I become kind of the leader we all need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some sort of exactly. either post-apocalypse or alien invasion. I feel like I'd be really useful. I think that I serve my purpose. Like there was a loud noise, and my first response was to go wake up my children. <laughs> you woke them up. Like, I didn't, but the 
noise didn't. And I was like, maybe they should know about the noise that just happened. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not, Chris, my, what's the opposite of a swivel? Because that's what I keep my head on. No, you keep your head in the sand, right? But you got to pull it out because uh, I need you to talk a little bit about, this is not actually a mailbag question, uh, but it, we do want to talk a little bit about the Game of Thrones Season 8 trailer. Uh, so consider that a question from Christopher P. Ryan. What were your impressions of this first trailer? The full trailer with the, actual, the, actual footage from season eight. What does the P stand for? Does it stand for Podrick? <laughs> yeah. See, that's a character from Game of Thrones that I remember. Um, I, well, look, it's going to be a lot of fun, right? Like, this is going to be exciting. It certainly managed to capture the tone. It certainly managed to cram in uh, FaceTime for every character that I can remember that is going to play a role in this season. Even some you can't um, even remember. Some that I <laughs> yeah. can't remember. I was mostly frustrated because it made it, the trailer is the lighting. In the trailer is so dark. I could just see the smudges on my laptop. Screen. Yeah. I didn't so know that HBO does that. HBO apparently makes the trailers darker so that they are more difficult to decode. Apparently. Oh, that's interesting, because I found that very challenging. Yeah, so Mallory and Jason obviously did decode it. They did an amazing video that's on YouTube now on the Ringer channel of essentially like an hour-long video breaking down this this trailer with painstaking detail. So if you want like real scholarship about it, that's where I would go. Um, I thought it was pretty cool because obviously it's teasing the battle, uh, the battle of Winterfell, which has been rumored to be coming for a while. And it also seems that uh, we're going to get a, a chance to see this ensemble really be together, whereas like last few seasons, I think we had a lot of pairs. We had a lot of people broken off into different parts of the, the map. It's going to be really cool just to see interaction that, that extends beyond that. What'll be interesting, actually, is to see if we like them together. You know, there are so many pairings, and this has never been done before on television, where characters that are the main characters have never crossed paths, uh, or, you know, until for John Daenerys, not until last season, and there's an open question as to whether they have chemistry or whether we want to see them, you know, actually sharing the screen together. It'll be, it'll be fun to see. I'm very interested in, and the, the trailer did a pretty good job of communicating this. I think I'm very interested in the ratio of lower key human moments to the giant CGI. What the fuckery that we know we're in, yeah. in, in that we have in store. Who are you happiest to see in this trailer? Well, because it's been a long time. Oddly, you know, I, I've always been really partial to Jamie Lannister, as has been well documented yeah. over the last few years. But uh, I was really excited to see Arya. Uh, and just seems like she's going to, I mean, they're all going to play major roles in the action. But sh- her trajectory is so fascinating to me. It's the one that I've I've really started to warm up to as I've kind of rewatched bits and pieces here over the last couple of weeks as we get ready for Talk to Thrones. Like I just think that her her sort of evolution from tomboy to assassin has just been amazing. I am so excited about your preparation to get back into it for Talk to Thrones. I will tweet about that. Okay. I, I really want to know. <laughs> like I want to see footage of you riding a stallion through the streets of Philadelphia with Mallory and Jason on ATVs behind you, a la Creed One. Um, I, I'm very excited about this. So, yeah, it's, look, here's the thing, guys. What is it, five weeks away now? April, 17th, April totally 14th, yeah. Hard to imagine, but what else is there to say? Let's go. Let's go. Uh, Josh Lewis asks us, and this is this is a great question, Josh. I I, yeah. I really it stopped me in my tracks, and I think even it'll stop Greenwald here. Josh yeah, Lewis I says I haven't seen any of these questions. 
Something I've been interested in for a while is whether or not the Golden Age shows like Mad Men, The Sopranos, or Breaking Bad were truly monocultural in the way that a lot of us refer to them as. Ratings-wise, these shows rarely, if ever, touched a typical Walking Dead rating. And the universality they have now comes as much from people watching them on streaming services. They had a way of dominating conversations on forums and sites like Vulture, ABC, and Grantland. But outside of that sphere, it was hard to find people in the real world who were watching on a week-to-week basis. Basically, his question is, was Golden Age TV as truly monocultural was it ever truly monocultural or was it more that these extraordinary shows felt truly special to those paying attention at the time and slowly bled out into wider audiences through streaming services? Josh, great question. Great question. That's a very um, Chuck Klosterman-esque question, I would say. Yeah. And I mean that as a compliment. I, I think the way to think about it, I don't think he's wrong, but I also think about it in terms of um, context. So prior to... I don't know when we're calling it, 99, 2000, Sopranos, whenever the so-called Golden Age started. Prior to that, there was essentially just TV. That was monoculture. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, when you and I were growing up, we watched The Cosby Show, we watched Family Ties, we watched Tears. Um, in the 90s, we watched ER and Friends, and millions and millions of people who we had, would maybe otherwise share nothing in common with also watched it. Starting with these prestige shows, suddenly there were two TVs. Um, there was a TV that still raked in all the money and that people watched on a nightly basis. And, you know, that's a, the long line that stretches from sitcoms that we watched in the eighties all the way to big bang theory and things like that. And then there was the second TV, this sort of new TV culture, which was then immediately elevated and signal boosted by the nascent internet and, and, and chat rooms and eventually Twitter. Right. And this was the TV that was talked about by people like us in person and then on podcasts and then also talked about by people who previously bragged about not owning televisions and the era. So I think it's really more that it was a monoculture. It was a, it's just that there were kind of two tracks and that was about it. And if you were watching, if you were invested in the second television, then you were probably watching those shows. Now we just have a thousand televisions and, you know, I mean, try even, the us of three or four years ago trying to decode the press release today that there is a mad about you reboot coming to spectrum which <laughs> i think used to be time warner cable I'm, but a, that's a I'm a spectrum subscriber sitcom. i don't get any of it but but i will but just in terms of partly because i believe this and partly to defend my own um takes of the time the last six episodes of breaking bad did feel monocultural to me in the sense that it felt not just that everyone was watching it, because clearly not everyone was, though many more people would catch up later on Netflix, but it felt so cumulative that it was a show that had a limited audience to begin with, but then because of those seasons of catching up on Netflix, when those last six came at the end of the summer, uh, week to week, it was as thrilling a time as I ever had covering television. Yeah, and I think that, I, I would just add, Josh, that I've kind of been trying to interrogate my use of monoculture recently, and, and the accuracy of that word. I think that it means different things to different people, ironically, since it's supposed to be this kind of a way of describing something that everybody believed in sort of in the same way. But I, I think that sometimes when I say it and when we talk about it, what we're really talking about is a television experience that's sort of passed away rather than specific kinds of television shows or specific TV shows. So really what I'm talking about is this run that happened, even I'll, I'll even go outside of the, the shows that you've mentioned that Andy was just talking about, but shows like 24 and Lost that I felt like 
had a certain hold over people and also fostered a conversation around them that would kind of be what was being talked about at bars and like at work when you would come in the next day. And that that's what Andy's talking about, that little bridge moment between the sort of mass entertainment of something like, you know, L.A. Law, you know, or E.R. and a certain specialized storytelling that was maybe happening on some of those HBO shows. Um, mm-hmm. And also like for Breaking Bad, for lost to some extent the end of the sopranos since the question was how's it going to end there was an element not necessarily of mystery like who done it but more like how will they end it or how will they how will they do it and that was also something that was driving a lot of you have to watch this on sunday night or you're going to be behind you have to watch this on sunday night or you know you you won't be part of the conversation the next day and you know i think that that's that well and truly is coming to an end with thrones now yeah, I think that's the piece of it that, that that the question doesn't necessarily take into account the having to watch it at the same time and what that meant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's move on to another question here, uh, and this is one I, I really really enjoy, but I wanted to hear your 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 feelings on this as well. I can do my answer while you're thinking of yours. So, uh, New York City, spelled in a funny way, asks. Assume you can travel back in time strictly for the purpose of the watch podcast. What year in TV and movie history would you want to set up shot and discuss the most? And I, I have an answer for this. I would love for us to be doing the watch in the fall and winter of 1984. Oh, wow. Uh, not okay. only because uh, it, we would be seven and that would be hilarious just for Andy and I <laughs> to be <laughs> just seven-year-old like... It's Andy Greenwald! And then, like, we talk about Transformers for two hours. (laughs) Happily. I would love that. Um, No, but the fall of 84, uh, when I was looking kind of at different years, we would have the premiere of Miami Vice in September, which I thought would be pretty cool, again, for seven-year-olds to be talking about, or for for us. Totally. Miami Vice premiered in September, and that kind of changed television a little bit, but you also had a lot of, like, sitcom stuff on. But more than that, uh, what a year for music that year. Because we would have yeah. Purple Rain, Born in the USA, I think Like a Virgin came out that year. Unforgettable Fire and The Replacements Let It Be, I think came out on the same day in October. And then Jesus. you also had R.E.M., Reckoning, Husker Du's, Arcade, The Smiths' first album, I believe. The music was incredible. And then that fall for movies, there was Jonathan Demme's Talking Heads movie, Stop Making Sense, Paris, Texas, Terminator, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Beverly Hills Cop. Plus, there was a presidential election. Jeez. So that would well, be fun, right? Be- better than mine. All I was going to say is I'd like to fast forward 20 years <laughs> to the fall or late summer of 2004. Because not only were we at our gulliest, which I think would have made for some hilarious recordings. I think a little bit slightly more erratic scheduling. Definitely erratic scheduling. Definitely, yeah. Definitely Kyle, I'm at the Borgata. From... Can I record this podcast on a payphone? <laughs> what was that? What was the little radio station next to like Frank's, the pizza place? East on Village Avenue Radio, a? man. EVR. I feel like I feel like we would have just begged for mic space on that. But that's also the that's the year Born Supremacy came out, oh, yeah. and The Wire season three came out. Yeah, and I just feel like. We are often enthusiastic on this podcast, and we love things that we love, but like to be there when the lava was flowing fresh from Passion Mountain, like for those things, boy, that would have been fun. That would have been fun. That would also be, oh, December of 04 would have been Purple Haze by Cameron. 
well, that, that's the trilogy right there. Yeah, We're done. Right. Okay, so I'm going to go with 1984. Andy's going to go with 2004. Um, let's say Brandon McShane wants to know, has the 2019 TV year started off stronger than 2018, and who holds the belt? Um, yes, stronger than 2018, definitely. 2018 was um, strangely uh, sluggish, I thought, uh, especially at the beginning of the year, and especially compared to 2017, which started with the, the final season of The Leftovers and The Young Pope and a bunch of other fun stuff. Um, yeah, what holds the belt? I'm not sure. I, you know, Russian Doll is the one that comes to mind just because we talked about it the most. And again, in our no longer monoculture way of talking about TV, that's the box that has been checked the most in conversations I've had with casual TV fans and industry people. Um, what else am I... I mean, we've talked about a couple of the shows that we've enjoyed, like the probably not really called this Pen15. And I, I continue to, to stand for the weirdly satisfying season three of Crashing. Um, what else? What else is out there? What do you think? Well, I I feel like this year I don't know. I, I feel like this year is is a little bit feels a little bit more vibrant to me. I I don't know whether that has more to do with the eyes with, with which I'm watching television. Maybe in two thousand early two thousand and eighteen, I was I didn't feel like the joie de vivre I do this year, but. I feel like there's a it's a kind of a cool time where while there is always a new show every week it seems like there are a couple of shows that are maturing and kind of in their second third fourth seasons which mm-hmm. is uh hard to come by I think because we you know when we started the watch it was sort of an end of a lot of things it felt like uh you know kind of I, I think I feel, I feel like you know at the end of Hollywood Prospectus and the end of, and the beginning of the watch we were seeing a bunch of our favorite shows sort of wrap up and now I feel like it's kind of cool to see like Good Fight and Expanse in their third and fourth seasons or whatever and even things like Killing Eve in Atlanta moving into its second third season uh Better Call Saul in middle age like I appreciate the fact that we've got a bunch of shows that are kind of like really good at what they do um mm-hmm. and then you also have event television, which is really nice, which is so Thrones and, you know, I think Stranger Things counts as that and and Big Little Lies counts as that. So you have like these kinds of, there's some fireworks going off. There's some shows that are aging like a nice wine. There's always new stuff to watch. So I, I feel like it's a better year so far for me than it was at this point last year. I, I don't know what hell has the belt though, because I've been in true detective land for three weeks for the last, I mean, for six yeah, weeks. Yeah, I, I think the fact that we're not sure maybe undercuts our argument a little bit. I, I, I would I would say Russian Doll, but it has a tenuous hold on it. I, I think you're right. Russian Doll, I think, with a tenuous hold is a good one. Um, what else? What else? What's a good one for you? Matt Linton wants to know, are there any 2019 albums that have caught your ear? I have only really been listening to these two massive playlists that one is made by David Holmes, where it's really a collection of what David Holmes plays on radio shows, and another is by uh, James Lavelle, who, you, you know, is, we know as the guy behind uncle and they just made these like 700 song playlists that i just like let them rock on shuffle that's really what i've been listening to i haven't been concentrating too much on new stuff i know that you're freaking out about vampire weekend (laughs) vampire weekend is really hitting some stuff right now like i can't believe the album cover for their new record father of the bride it is like every long box i ever bought at suncoast or i'm sorry west coast video which sold cds for no good reason like if they make t-shirts of this album cover, it needs to only come in extra large sizes and white, the vibe that they're giving off. And also just the total fucking monumental masterpiece that is harmony hall makes me super psyched about that record. But there've been a lot of good records. I, I like 
I like the two chains record. You know, I like the gun, a dripper drown two record. Um, <laughs> James Blake, Sharon Van Etten, uh, all really good. And, you know, I have to, since you're giving me the opportunity to say this on a podcast that Robert Forster, who was one half of my all time favorite band, the go betweens released a beautiful, beautiful solo album called Inferno. That's getting almost as much burn in my house as the really rosy soundtrack and my fair lady. <laughs> that's right. That's good. Oh, uh, better. By the way, better oblivion community center too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is that album out yet? Yeah. That album's out. It's good. I gotta cop that. I that's the Phoebe Bridgers wall up from the wall. Phoebe Bridgers. We do yeah, on our podcast. Connor Ober's one. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Greenwald, thank you for calling in. I thought you had all these Briar Patch questions. I was all oh, locked wait. in. Yeah, let me ask you a couple of them. I mean, there's just, yeah. there's some. All right, let me ask you a Briar Patch question. Hold on. Let's talk about it. I got to get back in the, back in the, you know. Okay. Got to be thinking about it. Yeah. Andy, how did you go about requiring the rights to Briar Patch? Oh, great question. Um, I didn't, which was kind of a giant mistake. Um, I just wrote a pretty uh, different uh, adaptation of the book for fun, for spec, on spec. And, um, it was like an exercise, right? You're, you're not supposed to do this, but basically like, I just had always had this thought of what, what I thought that story could be. And my agents were like, I just do it. It's just a sample. It's fine. So I did it. And then our friend Sam Esmail wanted to buy it and for universal. And that's when we found out that Paramount had bought the rights to the book, uh, outright in 1984. Okay. And so that was two and a half years ago. That that's seems like something we would have co- covered on 1984 watch. Yeah, it was basically, that's why on some level, I mean, this has all been very fast and fortunate, but some of the delays were related to that. And that's why I'm happy to say that Paramount is a co-producer on the project. I have two studios, but uh, don't do what I did. You should get the rights to anything you adapt. And I'm very grateful to have. So them. you think that they're, you know, this is, I guess, a bit of personal news, but I've been working on uh, just kind of like my own kind of rollicking take on To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, yeah. Do you think yeah. that, that I could run into any hurdles if I try to try to put that through? Do you think Sam would well, just buy how, that sight unseen? How rollicking? It's kind of like it, it what, it's, it's, it's To Kill a Mockingbird meets John Wick. Oh, wow. That, could it rollick harder than that? Um, I, let's, let's see if we can get Sam on the line. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm being told no. I'm being told lose this number. <laughs> I, I I know probably because Scott Rudin will like sue him just for taking the phone call. I bet mm-hmm. just for saying the word mockingbird. Uh, the other question is, what's it been like? This is this is from Leah. Uh, Leah wants to know a little bit more about the pitching and writing and production process. But just to to throw this like to make this a little bit more specific. What's been the most surprising thing that's happened in the writer's room recently? Like, I know that you're working with some really cool, talented writers. Uh, you're working on scripts for the for the season. On, like, a day-to-day basis, what is, like, actually talked about when you walk into a conference room and, like, there's a bunch of people sitting around a table and you guys are, like... like what, I'm kind of curious about what it's like to write collectively. First of all, I'm anti-table. We sit on couches. Oh, really? Yeah. Gotta, you don't want people, like... Stiff. You want them comfortable. You how know? So how have, dead poets of you? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I stand on the table sometimes to lecture. Um, sometimes we talk about if anyone brought donuts. Um, yesterday, I made everyone watch the scene from the live-action Archie telemovie where Jughead and his son wrap sugar, sugar to impress girls. Um, <laughs> uh, Eva, one of our writers, made everyone watch the end of Mulholland Drive so they could see how grandparents could be scary. It's, um, you know, it's basically what you'd imagine. Yeah. 
it's a it's a fascinating and totally thrilling experience and uh, process that is sort of hard to explain. Um, we are now like eight or nine weeks in, and what's amazing is how everyone contributes, but everyone also has a very distinct voice and role to play, and people sort of gravitate towards that naturally in terms of, you know, maybe one person is generally more skeptical. One person is being more mindful of the procedural mystery elements of the show. One person uh, says that he hates mysteries and yet is employed by me on the show. Um, <laughs> that's good, though. But that's a but that's a nice it's a nice mix. And the way it works, though, is basically on the the beginning. You know, I when I sold the show, I sort of pitched a version of what the season would be, and there are big big story beats across the ten episodes that have basically stayed. And what we've been doing is as we break each episode, saying, okay, well, we know we want it to feel like this because. You know, as you know from my criticism too, that like I think episodes should be episodes and be distinct to some degree and have their own particular feel to them. So if we're if we know we're going to have these sorts of things in the episode, how does it actually work? What's the TikTok of it? And then you sort of piece by piece build it. And then it's funny because you ask me that question and I know how to answer it, but I don't actually know how to articulate it because it's so it's just this living thing at the moment because everyone is in there doing it. Yeah. Except right. Me, I'm not in there doing it. They're in there doing it right now you're, on, you're doing on the it. fifth episode. And I'm here talking to you. I'll let you go, man. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, probably no show on Monday or we'll record something from Texas for, uh, Chris, for the feed, but I mean, I'm going to miss Chris, you. Have fun. Have fun in Texas. <laughs> Thanks man. And feel free I to give a me a little bit of a, a, so, a social boost on Twitter if you want. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to think about a way to do that that's both passive and aggressive. Okay. <laughs> and then I'll, uh, and, and it'll come across your transcript. I'll have a lone star for you. Goodbye. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Twix, the perfect partner for coffee. I'm not kidding, man. Next time when you get, you get your coffee, when the coffee break hits, do me a favor. Do Andy a favor. He's not even here, but he 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 agrees with me. He's got signed off on this. You got to pick up a Twix and you got to try it with your coffee. That sounds crazy. No, it doesn't. You can dip, dunk, or stir to make your afternoon show a little more exciting and tasty. Now, there's a lot of like elaborate coffee flavor choices being made by the public right now. You know, like everybody's doing all these different things with flavors and powders and foams and matcha and whatever you guys are doing. But like, let me tell you something that I like. I like a solid cup of coffee with almond milk. You don't have to like, you don't have to blow my mind. And when I have it though, I like, it's it's what I add to the coffee. It's what I have with the coffee. That's what takes it to the next level. Twix is the perfect partner for coffee because no matter which side you prefer, whether it's the left Twix, which flows caramel on a crunchy cookie that's bathed in chocolate, or the right Twix, which cascades caramel on a crispy cookie that's cloaked in chocolate, you can't go wrong. I personally, I go left. I like to flow, I like to crunch, and then I like to bathe. That's my vibe, but you can go right, you can go left. I also just want to say... Twix is a weirdly effective coffee stirrer. Kaya, did you know that? I did not. So almond milk tends to bunch up a little bit, especially if you get like the wild natural almond milk. I like, I basically like the most processed and fake version of almond milk. But if you get like that really good almond milk that basically breaks apart when it's in the coffee, stir it up, man, and stir it up with a Twix. 
That's all, and that's my that's my advice for life. If I was giving a valedictorian speech, that's what I would say to the graduates. Stir it up with a Twix. Drive to your nearest convenience store to pick up a Twix and coffee today. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Good Fight. Christine Baranski is back as Diane Lockhart in the new season of The Good Fight. You know her, you love her. She is the patron saint of this podcast. I love The Good Fight. It's premiering March 14th. Baranski stars alongside Kush Jumbo, Rose Leslie from Game of Thrones, Sarah Steele, Audra McDonald, Delroy Lindo, and Michael Sheen, who joins the cast this year. I love this show so much. Join the fight at cbs.com slash the watch to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access and catch up on the first two seasons ahead of the season premiere March 14th exclusively on CBS All Access. I feel like I've been banging the drum for the show for years now. This is your opportunity to see what I'm talking about. It's the chance to catch up. You guys can just go to cbs.com slash the watch and you can catch up on the seasons with your free trial of CBS All Access. All right, we are back. Uh, Andy had to jump off, but Kaya is going to join me now. Kaya, say hello. Hello. Hi. So Kaya is obviously our producer, if you didn't know. She's often referred to as the youngest member of the watch team out of the three of us and a harsh critic of my culinary habits. But Kaya is going to be giving me some questions here from the mailbag. So Kaya, let's get started. All right, let's do it. Um, First, we're going to start with one from Alan Jones. How big of a competitor do you think Disney Plus will be? Will it take more than classic Disney movies to outmuscle the likes of Netflix and Amazon? Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Do you refer to it as Disney Plus in your everyday life? I don't refer to Disney Plus often at all. Okay, so like at Albertsons and you're checking out, you're not like, are you guys going to subscribe to Disney Plus? No, I'm not. But if I was doing that, then I would call it Disney Plus because I'm classy. (laughs) Um, My answer to Alan's question is I think Disney is going to be a major player due to the significance of its library alone. You know, so the the crown jewels of Disney, I think, are going to shine about as bright as any of these platforms have. Um, they have the Disney library of children's classics, which are going to obviously attract like a huge base of families that I think want to have those shows or those movies rather at their fingertips as they as they have over the decades that since they've been out and we're talking everything from Mary Poppins to to you know Dumbo and Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and all the stuff that I don't watch. So their crown jewels will be brighter, but for me Netflix's appeal is not um it's not about how loud it can get, it's about the constant hum. I know I'm mixing my metaphors here a little bit, but Netflix, the Netflix experience, and and Kai, I mean, you jump in here if you agree with me. It's really about like watching three episodes of Friends back to back, and then you wind up randomly watching some like foreign crime show you've never heard of more than it is appointment viewing. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I mean, to an extent, I'm definitely one to pop on the office if I just want to like turn my brain off yeah. for a little bit, or like I've been really liking Shit's Creek. Right. Lately. Um, but also, I mean, if there is a particular like Netflix show or movie like Triple Frontier that's going to come out next week, that's going to be more appointment viewing. For that goes me. in the GCAL. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Like I have it noted in my head that Triple Frontier will be out next Wednesday and I will be watching it. Is Triple Frontier important to someone in your life? 
No, it's important to me. <laughs> um, okay, so like I I completely agree with you. That's a that's a good point that they, that Netflix does have its its signature things that people. I mean, I already am kind of like mentally preparing for Stranger Things in July, like as a normal person does. You know, one of the things that I did think about with Alan's question though is when I first moved to New York uh, to work with Andy. Uh, you know, we had known each other before that, but I moved down to New York. He was working at Spin Magazine's website in 2000. And I moved down there and, we were, and I was working at the website with him. And there was this, I wouldn't say tension, but like it was the early days of the editorial internet as like magazines had websites, you know, and you would go to, you know, the New York Times.com or Spin Mag, spin.com to, to read not only stuff from the magazine, but original content that people who were working at those websites were creating. And there was a little bit of, uh, it's definitely a discussion all the time about what do we put on this website that won't detract from what we're really trying to sell here, which is magazine subscriptions, because that was the business model back then. So they wanted to basically make sure that the magazines was still special enough, was still authoritative enough, and that the website was really only like additive and not really its own editorial voice. And that obviously has changed over the decade plus since then. But I was kind of thinking about that relationship in, you know, with regards to some of the big Disney properties like MCU and Star Wars. I think that will be the biggest test of their seriousness about this platform is like, does anything canon altering happen in a, in a Marvel show that's on Disney Plus? Does anything canon altering or truly important happen in The Mandalorian that changes like our understanding of Star Wars or... Is a Mandalorian like in the conversation for like the, some of the best Star Wars content, you know? And if they treat it seriously, I think it'll be paradigm shifting. And if they look at it as an extension of uh, the movies, then I think it will be it'll be okay. And that's kind of what the Netflix Marvel shows were. They were okay. They had some highs, but they were generally like pretty good. But I'm really curious to see like. If you want to know how seriously they're taking their streaming platform, it's will they ever put something in there that will change everybody's perception of that piece of intellectual property? So I guess that's that's the answer to that question. Um, this is one we got from Mark Weaver that I found interesting as the resident young person on the watch. <laughs> Mark Weaver says, I'm a middle school teacher and the majority of my students consume the vast majority of their media through streaming, YouTube, Twitch, and Netflix, mostly Riverdale and older comedies like The Office and Friends. What do you see for the future of cultural criticism as younger generations seem to be moving towards more ephemeral content? Do you think Gen Z will graduate into more traditional forms of storytelling or has streaming, particularly YouTube and Twitch, fundamentally altered the landscape? Uh, that's a great question, Mark. I've been thinking about it since I saw it yesterday. I think it was on our Facebook page. Um, and I think it also, uh, popped up on my Twitter feed. Um, I, I think about this all the time because we have these conversations here at the ringer about our video content, you know, and about what kind of, I think that you bring your biases as someone who's grown up watching things your whole life. And it can be really hard to, understand like, well, what is it that people want to watch on YouTube and how is that different than what people would want to watch if it was on a cable network, right? And that's even happened over the years, to be honest, with uh, some of the after shows we've done. You know, what Jason and I uh, were kind of doing with the Flat Circle in collaboration with folks like Sean Yu and Jason Gallagher and Steph Snowden here 
was trying to make something that was very much in line with the way people watch things on YouTube. It's usually you feel like a degree of engagement with the people who you're watching on YouTube. That's sometimes disarming and sometimes feels a little bit like overly casual to me, but that's because I'm 40 or I'm, I'm older than 40, but as I'm in my forties and you know, how do you kind of create something that follows along a structure and has expertise and is able to deliver certain things while also creating that sense of intimacy with, with people. And I think that that is weirdly, what Twitch and YouTube do is it does create a sense of intimacy and it also seems to be a sense of constance. I guess that, is that the word I'm looking for? Constance? Basically, it's like when, when I look at a vlogger who's like, I'm just going to live, when, I, when somebody's like, I'm just streaming for six hours. Like that just seems to me, it's almost like not dissimilar to what Kaya was saying with like when she wants to turn her brain off and watch The Office. It's like, there are people who are just like, I'm just going to turn my brain off and have this guy playing video games in the background. And I'll, I'll engage and maybe I'll go in the chat or maybe I'll watch it for like intently and watch this guy play Fortnite for a while. But for the most part, maybe it's just, it's like wallpaper or it's like having The Office on. And that might not be that much different than the way Andy and I grew up and we would come home from school and turn on syndicated sitcoms for a couple of hours. I do wonder whether or not there will be a gradual long-term impact on storytelling. I mean, I think that is legitimate. It's funny that Mark mentions Riverdale as, you know, one of the shows that his students are watching. Riverdale is about as, you know, old-fashioned as it gets. It's soap opera. And they're watching shows like Friends and The Office, which are in the, themselves dated comedies in terms of, like, their cultural references and, and whatever. But I think that part of the reason why people are so into Friends and The Office is that there's so many damn episodes. I mean, Kai, do you like that, knowing that you're not, like, ever going to run out of these yeah, I mean, I think it's that, and that's just, like, the feeling that I can just kind of jump in wherever and, like, just sort of go. I saw in another question that someone wished that Netflix had, like, a shuffle option yeah. for shows like these, and that's kind of what I would want, too, because sometimes, like, I don't—when I watch The Office, I'm not watching front to back. You're not watching chronologically or, like, yeah, you're not going no. season through season. No, I'm just kind of, like, picking a random season and a random episode and going from there. Huh. So that'd be interesting. It's like, I, I I mean, I think that this almost ties back into the Disney Plus conversation because this is, I think, ultimately the thing that Netflix likes is the the feeling that you can come to Netflix and, and not never leave like Hotel California, but that you can spend all of your viewing time within Netflix and that there is no kind of show and no kind of movie that you could want to watch that they don't have. Now, do they make as good movies and shows as... HBO or A24, not not right now, uh, but they might someday. And in some ways, ease of use, having everything kind of in front of you like that and having this weird algorithmic like, oh, this thing came up or this next episode started playing or I finally decided to give Big Mouth a chance or whatever, that is just so much different than this show's on at 8.30 on Thursday and it's going to stop every five minutes for commercials and you can tape it or you could get it on iTunes and pay for that single episode or a season pass. There's like so many different barriers of entry there. And even though I think that there will be a long time before those networks go away fully, I think that that's ultimately what Mark is kind of getting at. How that changes how we talk about this stuff is really interesting. You know, I think you can do some pretty high-level cultural criticism on on various like forms of storytelling and personality driven television for, or video on YouTube and on Twitch. But 
it's not the same thing as analyzing like someone's uh, use of or subversion of three act structure or mysteries or whatever. I mean, I think that I think that it is a different language all to itself. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by On Running. It's time to check out the latest running craze, On. On was born in the Swiss Alps with one goal, to revolutionize the sensation of running. The entire company is based around the idea of zero gravity running, and On has quickly become the fastest growing running brand in the world. What makes On different is its emphasis on a clean and minimalistic design, as well as its sole technology, which gives you the sensation of running on clouds. These shoes are so comfortable, you will not want to take them off, and they have the full range of shoes and apparel to power your full day on and off the trail. I got the Cloud Swift uh, just because most of the stuff that I do, almost the training I do, you know, when you see me kind of like trying to set personal bests around town, uh, I usually run on the road. And that's like typically what I do in LA is like road running. It's on hills, on streets and sidewalks and around reservoirs and stuff like that. So it's a lot of different kind of training. But I love the Cloud Swifts because they can go anywhere and they feel light as a feather. Try on a pair of Ons for yourself for 30 days and put them to the test. That means actually running in them before you decide to keep them, not just like standing. You don't have to just like walk around a shoe store with them and be like, I guess I'm going to use these every day for like the next three years or whatever. If you're not convinced, you send them back for a full refund. Head over to on-running.com slash watch. That's on-running.com to test on shoes or gear firsthand and experience what running on clouds feels like. That's on-running.com slash watch. Okay, so next question from Sean Tucker. Is there a TV show, in your opinion, that was cut short before it could fully flourish and become a prestige TV show? Yeah, so prestige is tough because what's prestige anymore, right? Like there's Killing Eve in Atlanta and these things that are like sort of up for a lot of awards. But uh, like we were talking about before with the monocultural thing, I think that our idea of there being like five or six really good shows every year, I think that there is some, there's there, there's a degree of sameness in people's top 10 lists from 2018. But even with the podcast that Andy and I did with Sam, there was some real variance. I mean, you do have people who are like, that show you like that you think is the best show sucks. And, you know, that, that there is there is a little bit more of a diversity of opinion, I think, which is a good thing. I think that that is... That means that there's enough TV that's stimulating enough different parts of our brains and our collective kind of, uh, the collective creative muscles that we all have when we're watching television that that's a good thing. Uh, but as far as uh, stuff that's been cut short, I would, I would nominate two. Uh, one is Channel Zero, which was a show on sci-fi, which I didn't really ever feel like properly caught its, uh, its wave, but to me, was about as good as horror can get on television. And this is a, a show that was created by uh, Nick Ant- Antosca, um, who I believe has... Oh, he has an, a Hulu show coming up soon, and I think he's going to come on The Watch to talk about it, he, a show called The Act. But Channel Zero was based on a series of, like, basically internet urban legends, but creepypastas, which are these, like, online stories that are essentially like really creepy campfire stories that somehow involve like whether, no, they don't necessarily involve internet culture, but you know, like kind of Slender Man type, did this really happen, you know, like mythology. 
And uh, I thought Channel Zero was incredible, though the seasons that I saw. It was an anthology series, series, so each season did a different one of those stories. Um, my favorite, I think, was No End House, but you know, a lot of people are really into Hidden Door or um, or rather Dream Door. So there, there's a lot of uh, of of great stuff on Channel Zero that I would I would recommend people check out if they get a chance. And then the other one is Detroiters, which is a show on comedy. Uh, Comedy Central with Sam Richardson and um, Tim Robinson that I thought was just really, really, really funny and never quite like caught on to that like um, workaholics level of of fandom, but I thought it was was just a great sitcom. All right, next question from Chuck Salick. Borrowing a question that someone posted on this page a week or two ago, what novel would you most like to see turned into a series? Any you think would work especially well as a miniseries? Chuck, good question. I think I've said, I've pitched this before, uh, but I, I feel fine like throwing this out there multiple times just because it's not ever going to happen. Uh, at least I don't think it will. But World War Z uh, would make an incredible miniseries. And especially if they did it slightly more faithfully to Max Brooks's uh, book, not only in terms of the stuff that happened. So if, for people who don't know, World War Z is a 2006 book written by Max Brooks that is basically an oral history of the of a zombie war. Now, I know that sounds pretty silly um, or genre-y, and it is, but I think that the cool thing that what he does is basically treat it as seriously as possible. So what would be the global medical community's response to uh, a zombie apocalypse what would be the military response what would be the political response what would be the social response and he thinks about it globally so there's stuff that's set in china there's stuff that's set in israel there's stuff that's set in colorado there are these huge political decisions that are made and while i actually enjoyed uh world war z quite a bit and i'm sad that david fincher is actually not making world war z 2 which it's a just think it would have been like an absolute scream to see him do that uh, there is a version of World War Z that you could do on TV, although there are some huge set pieces that you could do on TV that would actually model itself after almost like a Ken Burns documentary where it's basically a lot of talking head interviews about this action that I think would be really, really cool. Uh, and I obviously would not be surprised if that actually happens. I assume Paramount owns the rights to World War Z and it wouldn't even shock me if it winds up on Paramount Network in the next like five years. So that would be the one that I would pick. Kai, I think we have time for one more. Okay, well, we have another one from Cal O'Boyle. Um, so you get a choice of director for an up-and-coming movie and gives you six options. So you get to choose a director for a Marvel movie, a DC movie, a Netflix show, a Blumhouse flick, and an A24 flick, so five. Okay, so I'm going to slightly do a little bit of a variation on Cal's question here because I think up-and-coming director is where up-and-coming directors sort of run into a little bit of trouble. Because we keep picking these young directors to uh, take on these huge franchises. And we've had a couple of experiences with like Josh Trank and some other people where it seems to like really kind of like gum up their careers a little bit for, you know, maybe there's other reasons behind that, obviously. But I think that it would be cool if uh, you got some veterans involved here too. So for my Marvel movie, which you kind of define as maybe like witty, bright, usually a big ensemble has a lot of like moving parts, but has an element of, of subversion and originality to it. 
I would love to see Danny Boyle try it. Uh, you know, I know that Danny Boyle was supposed to do the Bond movie and and left the project because of creative differences. You could easily see that happening with a Marvel movie. But he's such a relentlessly um, inventive filmmaker that I would love to see him on a on a Marvel movie. And I also think that his handling of of a lot of verbal witticism is like really. It's it's he'd be perfect for this kind of scenario, for the DC movie again another veteran. It's you think it's a more a little more gloomy, a little bit more noir, atmospheric. I was thinking Carl Franklin. Carl Franklin uh, is a really accomplished film and television director. He directed one of my favorite movies called One False Move, uh, dec- like a couple decades ago now. But since then, is he did Devil with a blue, Devil in a Blue Dress. He's done tons of television like The Wire, and I would love to see what he did with one of the DC characters for my Netflix show. I know that this seems reductive and probably a bit of a layup, but why don't we just let Catherine Bigelow direct Narcos? How come we haven't done that yet? For a Blumhouse flick, uh, one of my favorite horror directors and producers is Roxanne Benjamin. She did, she worked on Southbound uh, and XX and VHS as in, in various roles as a producer and a director. And she's got a new movie coming out called Body at Brighton Rock. And I think it would be cool to see her do a Blumhouse movie. And for A24, it seems pretty obvious after mid-90s with Jonah Hill, let's, let's let Michael Sarah take a shot and let, let Michael Sarah make a movie. And if you've ever seen Michael Sarah's Criterion collection, like the closet videos they do where they're at the Criterion uh, offices and people are just like picking DVDs out of the merch closet, his is really funny. So I recommend that. Guys, thank you so much for your questions. It's been really fun answering them. Uh, like I said, we'll have a Texas show going up, I think, on Monday. And then next Thursday, uh, I would expect it to be incredibly triple frontier heavy. Um, so look forward to that next Thursday. Thanks for listening, Branskis. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by The Good Fight. Christine Bransky is back as Diane Lockhart in the new season of The Good Fight, premiering March 14th along with Kush Jumbo, Rose Leslie, Sarah Steele, Audra McDonald, Delroy Lindo. Join the fight at cbs.com slash the-watch to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access and catch up on the first two seasons ahead of the season premiere on March 14th exclusively on CBS All Access. That's cbs.com slash the-watch to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by On Running. On is taking the running scene by storm as the fastest growing running brand in the world based around the radical idea of zero gravity running. On's clean and minimalistic design, as well as its sole technology, gives you the sensation of running on clouds. Try a pair of Ons for yourself for 30 days and put them to the test. That means actually running in them before you decide to keep them. At on-running.com slash watch. That's on-running.com slash watch.